I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, furiously finishing his trip advisor for Area X, it's Andy Greenwald! Listen, man. Woo! Annihilation! Happy to be here with you. I feel like the people should know you're, you're, you're recharged. I feel balanced. Chris spent the weekend <laughs> up in Pizzolatto country. Yeah, I was up in Ojai. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know where you traveled to where your DNA was refracted to the point where you are now basically part eucalyptus <laughs> plant. My eyes are shimmering. Uh, Andy, uh, the illusions that we are making are to annihilation, which is what we will be spending the first half of this podcast discussing. Obviously, we talked about the book for Double Down Book Club. We have Jeff Vandermeer on the pod, yeah. so you can go back. We can send out links to those older podcasts if you want to hear this sort of three-dimensional version of this mm-hmm. uh, this story. Uh, before we get too far into this, I want to talk to you about a couple of ringer uh Wide, wide, wider ringer projects that we've got going From the, on. The ringer expanded universe. Yeah, let's talk about the Recapables, man. Okay. Amanda Dobbins, one of the best out. A queen. Uh, hosting the Recapables for Atlanta. So the Recapables, kind of playing off of the Rewatchables, kind of playing off of our need for, you know, you want to have that conversation right after the episode ends. So the Ringer is putting up instant breakdowns of every episode of Atlanta season two. It's hosted by Amanda, and it features a rotating past panel. <clears throat> And it features a rotating panel of obsessive Ringer staffers, and you can subscribe to the Recapables. The first episode is recapping the f- first season, mm-hmm. so you can get get caught up. Uh, and that's up now, and the instant recap analysis goes up this Thursday after the season premiere of Atlanta, season two. Obviously, you and I will chat a little bit about that on Thursday day, just like kind of yeah. as a preview. And then that afternoon or evening, depending on where you live, uh, you can get that episode of the Recapables for episode one. It's a doozy. You'll love it. Also, since we're talking about Annihilation, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about some cool shit on our website. I love it. We've got um, an exit survey today about the movie Annihilation, where a lot of our staff weighed in with mm-hmm. some takes, learned a lot about a lot of people. In I think fifty percent of the box office was Ringer adjacent. <laughs> we're about to test that theory. Uh, Sean Fennessy. Our buddy did an incredible mm-hmm. pod with Alex Garland. You mm-hmm. can listen to that on The Big Picture, which is on Channel 33, mm-hmm. or you can read a large chunk of it on TheRinger.com. Oh. Great great written transcript of that. And uh, also Adam Naiman mm-hmm. uh, wrote a wonderful review of the, the movie. And he was a little bit more skeptical. I think maybe maybe you were too. Yeah. I'm just going to point at you. Um, so let's get into Annihilation. In the second half of the pod, we're going to talk about Netflix's Everything Sucks, which we've watched a couple episodes of. Yes, but we are going to talk about this movie in some detail. Mm-hmm. I would say for those people who are about to hit fast forward or turn off the podcast, this isn't really a movie that uh, is going to be, your experience is not going to be super negatively affected, I think, if you listen to us talk about details, because it, none of it makes that much linear sense. It's really uh, no, impressionistic. Yeah. I guess I, but I, I get it if you want to move on. If you were planning on reading the book now. Go ahead. Feel free. <laughs> Unrelated. <laughs> Completely different experience, but we will probably mention some book stuff that if you yeah. were like, I want to be in a vacuum and read the book now. Um so, so let's get. My into wife it. was like that, and then I just basically told her the plot of the book over pizza last night. Let's uh, let's re- let's recapable a bit mm-hmm. here, okay? So, um, Annihilation the book came out a couple years ago, as you said, by Jeff Vandermeer. Yeah. It's part of the Southern Reach trilogy. Um, we got really into it. We did it as the book club. It is a terrific read. I read it on one airplane flight when I was sick of all the movies Delta was offering uh, during 2016. I'm just like, I think people like to know where we are in the timeline. I mean, we you know? started this talking about like getting our chi back centered. So we, you could talk talk about movies all you want. Don't say we to me, brother Muzone. Okay, <laughs> I have not reinvented myself to that degree. 
I live in a house of sick children, okay? Like, this is so far from my experience of this weekend. I mean, maybe. You live in a land of wolves. I live in a land of sick children. Um, The book is really immersive, really surreal. I think a lot of people read it and said, boy, I can't wait for the movie backed with there's no way you can make this into a movie. Alex Garland, who did Ex Machina, who wrote um, books like The Beach and wrote the screenplay for 28 Days Later, an inspired, and, never let me go. And, yeah. and never let me go, an inspired choice to adapt this, and delivered what has to be a legendary flex by making a movie uh, in which he admits he read a galley copy of the book once and then wrote a screenplay yeah. based on his vague Someone impressions said and memories. You can't of it. adapt this, and he said, "Hold my beer." Yeah. I don't actually know if that's how you use the "hold my beer" thing, but let's just go with it. It is um, wildly different, which. Let's say from this from jump, I find admirable and interesting. Mm-hmm. I think Jeff Vandermeer finds it potentially something else. Now we know why he was a little uh, hesitant when we talked to him about it. So he had to have known somewhat. I mean, in, in Alex he and knew. Sean's conversation, yeah. Garland's like, I called him and I was like, This is this is my my pitch. Yeah. You know, and I don't know whether Jeff had any red light, green light. Uh, I think optionality there, but I probably at that point he, it had sort of out of his hands. It had to have been a courtesy yeah. call, and I think he's his experience is his own, and he hasn't talked about it. But I'm sure it was like any artistic person's, which is it once you know it's its own thing. The book exists, but you have to feel a little bittersweet about it sure. because it's yeah. transforming it to a potentially larger audience. That being said, I don't know that you could do a page for page no adaptation of this. Of and this I book. will say, going into it, I wish there was more of the book and maybe less of the book. I couldn't tell. Like, I, let's go big picture to yeah. start with. Yeah. Um, it was heartening to see how many people responded to my tweet where I was like, I just saw a movie. Let's all talk about it. And a lot of people, I think, assumed I meant this is a great movie. Let's go see it. I think this is a fascinating movie. I think this was a worthwhile movie. I'm excited to talk to you about it at length. I don't think this movie works, but I think that there are things in it, um, performances, visuals, the last 15 minutes in particular, that are so astonishing that they have stayed with me and are worth discussion. But I also think we can have, and maybe we should put this at the end of the conversation, a kind of larger meta conversation about how movies like this get made in 2018, why they get made, and what happens to them. Because I will say, as a fan of the book, as a fan of the material, as a fan of Alex Garland, I was really ready to cape up on this podcast and be like, how dare Paramount basically dump it? As we've alluded to, the movie did not get much promotion. Did the it movie was, not? I mean, because there are stars in it, you know, Natalie Portman did Saturday Night Live and Gina Rodriguez was on Marin's podcast. Like, they they were out there. Yeah. But it did not get a giant push. And Paramount also sold the movie for the rest of the world to Netflix. And so I was ready to cape up and be like, how dare they? This is art. You know, I'm so excited. How for dare this. they this could have been big. paradox, this thing? Exactly. Yeah. Honestly, and I say this not meaning to be critical of the film. I'm like, good job by you, Paramount. <laughs> like, you got some money in the theaters and you sold this and the rest of the world to Netflix so you got your money because this is not this was never going to be a blockbuster I don't know how you sell this movie because the you mean to Netflix or to the audience to the audience and I think that Blade Runner 2049 had a a similar problem Uh in terms of at twice the length. That was also something that people, that there was a group of people, albeit I imagine the crowd, the the, the, peop, the amount of people who were interested in Blade Runner outnumber the amount of people who were interested in the Southern Reach trilogy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there was still a built-in audience who were probably like looking forward to, to Blade Runner coming out. How do you sell that movie without giving too much of it away with enticing people to come with some of the more thrilling moments? So in Blade Runner, that would be you know, uh, hovercrafts shooting through walls. Harrison Ford's face. And Harrison Ford. 
Whereas, and in, in Annihilation, in some of the trailers, they gave away some of the biggest scares, or mm-hmm. at least alluded to them. Uh, the Tessa Thompson getting yanked by the alligator, the bear woman. Oh, those, I hadn't seen any ads, so I was, yeah. those got me. Those yeah. were good uh, jump scares. Those were great jump scares, but that sets the tone for the movie. Going into this movie, I was like, interesting, they've decided to make this into a, a sci-fi horror movie. Yes, yeah. and, and I think my biggest point, and perhaps my biggest criticism of it, is that this movie, to me, existed in an uncanny valley between a mainstream uh, sci-fi horror film and a, an art house film. Mm-hmm. And I think Garland's, um, Garland's uh, tastes run more towards the art film. And so, but I cannot tell because he did this adaptation what interested him most and what was mandated and what wasn't because it veers pretty wildly. You know, I think the exposition, the buildup is pretty clunky and all of the backstory that he added with Oscar Isaac's character, Natalie Portman's character and her cheating on him, those were the beats that rang the falsest to me. But again, I cannot tell if that was a studio being like, we need some origin, we need to know her emotional whatever, or, and maybe you know this from interviews, or this is something that Garland himself is less interested in because his work generally is about people who have either intentionally distanced themselves or have, for whatever reason, are emotionally cut off from the world. Like, that is his work. Yeah, and I think also in a couple of his works, for instance, I guess all of his works, and to some extent, they put people in extreme situations and they have an ostensible mission, but that mission is corrupted by um, human nature, mm-hmm. right? So in Sunshine... Or human break, right. Yeah, yeah. in Sunshine, they're supposed to humanity. restart the sun with a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Sunshine is actually like, the... What an elevator pitch. It's One of the all-timers. It's the inverse of this movie where yeah. Sunshine is this incredible kind of philosophical tome with Cliff Curtis talking about how... The sun and brightness is the opposite of darkness, and that's where we find God. And like mm-hmm. we're gonna, you're gonna, if you were to die, getting roasted by the sun would be to actually like be transported into a higher plane of existence. Okay, all this stuff, and then it turns into a monster, and they have to fight the monster so that they can still drop the bomb to start the sun. Mm-hmm. This is the inverse. This is they fight the monsters in the beginning so that they can get to the philosophical stuff at the end. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, yeah. But in each of his movies, I think for 28 Days Later, when you get to the uh, Christopher Eccleston character at the end, when you get to the Brendan Gleeson character and they're kind of – all the things that you would hope that we could transcend if we were in an extreme situation actually come up. Um, and in this movie as well, I think that he puts together this group and then he has this group fall apart and have these people – I mean, as as the the cast character says, we're all damaged goods, which mm-hmm. I think is a little on the nose. But, sure was. Um, yeah, so I guess I can't not talk about this in relationship to the book because I think that in the same way and, 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 and you know, in some ways we're unique or the people who've read the book are unique, but this is an increasingly common occurrence in movie going and in television watching where you are watching something that is executing a vision of source material. And mm-hmm. that's not that significantly different than the way entire movie history has been with people making Westerns off of, you know, Louis L'Amour books, mm-hmm. but... This is something that you have a relationship to the same way somebody might have a relationship to a certain Batman storyline or a certain Avengers storyline. And I couldn't just watch the movie. Now, I actually really liked it. Mm -hmm. I actually thought it was this interesting artist's embellishment of some ideas that Vandermeer had with their own ideas. And I thought that the actual physical, visual representation of Area X, what Garland calls the shimmer. Which he calls for. Look, why that was... 
Why did Area you do X that? is pretty cool. Area I don't know X why is a you cool call name. It. But you know, you brought up some stuff about what Paramount brought into it, and there's some pieces online this week, you know, today about the original script that Garland had. Oh, okay. And more than anything, I think it had more of the stuff that you didn't like. There was more King, yes. apparently. There was more Southern Reach, but Southern Reach as this nefarious agency that was imprisoning Lena, whereas in the book, it's entirely voluntary. Yes, she volunteers, right? Yeah. Um, and there's some other stuff about, like, framing devices and, and character deaths that it, we don't have to get into, but it... That makes sense I, to Garland me, Garland tried to, tro- you know, he talks about Trojan horsing. I mean, like, he tried to this Trojan is, horse it. This is what people do, and your point is, like, your point is well taken. People have attachments to the way they encounter material first. That's always the case. And I, I always want to be an advocate for someone having their own way into something. What I think is a little disappointing just from Jump is that what Vandermeer does, which is particularly unique, is that the story is essentially about maybe it's alien, maybe it's whatever, but Earth is reclaiming itself. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a biology-based story. She's a biologist. It's a story about Earth sort of reclaiming something from what was taken from it from man. Garland is not as interested in that. He's interested in about he's interested in the way we hurt ourselves and our and the sort of deterioration that's built into mm-hmm. our cells and how that plays out emotionally. That's valid too, but it does feel grafted onto this other subject matter that so I I, I mourn a little bit the loss of that other story. I'm not sure how he would have done it. The other things that I mourn are the psychologist character, Jennifer yes. Jason Lee. Um there's some stuff from the book that makes it's cool that I think works better. That yeah. she, she hypnotizes them. She's running. She's she has the bear her own agenda. In the book. I mean, there is there is some yes. sort of creature lurking in and, the swamp, but she is the person who's manipulating the main characters and, and and seems to know a lot more about what's going on in Area X than they do. Yes, and I don't know what choices she was making in this performance because they were very strange to me. I think that she made a choice and played it throughout, but it made the character extremely opaque in a way that I couldn't really follow. Like there were just considering how clunky the exposition was to get these characters together. It seems together, like she has a secret and that she has a, a ulterior motive. Right. And then and they in the, seem in the, in to the book er- there is one and that we won't she, spoil. And they seem to erase that motive about three quarters of the way into the movie. Yeah, exactly. Then she's they're just, just like, like, she's like, I got to get to the lighthouse. I, I really enjoyed in the exit survey that someone, I don't remember which, which Ringer staff member was just like, I love a movie where someone says the name of the movie. Right. <laughs> and she, right. The fact that she's like, hey, But the use of the, the word annihilation in the book is actually really cool. Yeah. You know, uh, Okay, well, that's enough mourning of the book. There's that. And then there's also the main sort of mystery of the book mm-hmm. is this creature uh, that is crawling down a staircase writing in <laughs> religious poetry. Religious poetry. In phosphorescent mold yeah. on a wall. And and that is just not in the movie. No. <laughs> I, the, the whole I, tower thing, the yeah. whole bunker. The tower that's also a staircase. So it's it's a very interesting choice to just be like, mate. I'm going to move on with this then. You know, it's like he looked at the word annihilation. He's like, what if we annihilate ourselves then? You know? Yeah. I don't know why I'm just doing Sasha Baron Cohen as Alex Garland. I was going to let, I thought this was new Chris. (laughs) I was going to let it just let it roll. Uh, Okay. So all that being said, there are some really worthwhile things about it. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a little bit of half-stepping. Like I loved the all-female expeditionary force and what that represented visually and what that could represent thematically. I think that was punted a little bit. Yeah. Also, Gina Rodriguez on her Ellen Ripley shit was just Outstanding. That, that was a surprise. Yeah, but she was great. Yeah. Um, as you, if you listen to her on Marin, she does a lot of a Krav Maga. Does she? Is that how you say Krav it? Krav Maga. Uh, I yeah. Think. It sounds like I'm doing a. It sounds like I'm imitating the parrot from Itania <laughs> when I say that. Um, I thought that the bear scene. Yeah, bears, that's great. Uh, was just um, astonishing. The interior Gina Rodriguez's interrogation scene, com- and paired with the 
the bear who has Shepard's voice inside Dude, of it wild. was one of the most uniquely terrifying things I've seen in a very long time. Can I um, sidebar for a second mm-hmm. here? Uh, one thing listeners know, and you know, Chris, of course, because you're you, is that you, as a friend, often caution me away from scary things. Yes. I was 100% fine with every single thing Good. in this movie. Good. Would you have cautioned me away from it knowing that I am a retiring No, type? I don't, because th- I, I think it's too deeply, like, it's it's too ponderous of a movie. If There are things that you can do with horror movies that make the tension around that scene just unrelenting and, and unbearable. And, unbearable. and I think that there's enough, uh, you know, ponderous shots of Natalie Portman's back and water moving in a glass that you can, like, get your breath, you know? Yeah, the water moving, I mean, some of the shots are, it's it's beautifully directed. Yeah. Uh, I also really want to give a shout-out to Tessa Thompson, who's becoming one of my favorite performers. She's I, very good in this, yeah. She's very different in everything. Yeah. The last thing I saw her in was a film, little film called Thor Ragnarok, which I know you love as a movie, and you love when I say the whole title. Yeah. Um, and she is... Not this in that movie. I love that she can just dial it up or down and was just incredibly retiring and cerebral in this movie. And then she turns into a plant, which is nice. Yeah. She has a happy ending. What do you think this movie is about? Um, do you think it's literally about Jennifer Jason Lee's speech in the cave? No. I mean, I think that there is – I think it's clumsy. But I think there was an attempt to make this about something. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the book is very impressionistic, and there are two more books that are not as successful as the first book and trying to advance an idea that sort of leaves us, gives us threads, but nothing really to, to knit it together. Uh, I think it's about that those various monologues about how de- deterioration and annihilation is built into us, and do we, how do we respond to it? Yes. Why do we destroy things that we love? Why do we destroy ourselves? Uh, I think that was sort of clumsily handled. But the sheer what the fuck beauty of the end of the film is so moving and unsettling and inspiring. And that was my main thought. Like, I I think that there used to be a time when there were two versions of this movie. There was the big budget movie, and then maybe there was the picnic at Hanging Rock indie Mm -hmm. that I think he kind of wanted to make. And he shot, he he went up the middle. He made a $40 million sci-fi horror philosophy movie. Yes, and I I don't think it works because I don't think that could ever work. But I think that the fact that he Trojan horsed that ending just visually, yeah. choreographically, just um, psychologically into this movie was really impressive and really profound. And I think that that scene, and I have to give a shout out to uh, our old Grantland colleague, Emily Yoshida, who wrote a piece on Vulture that basically suggested that there was a connection here to mental illness and depression and the, the ways that we hurt ourselves when mm-hmm. we are not aware of hurting ourselves. And that is what that dance with the rainbow double signifies in yes. a way. Like it's not, and just being able to convey all that wordlessly that this is something that is her that isn't her, that is hurting her but is not malicious, um, was beautiful and transcendent and provided a moment that is really wonderful in a movie theater as opposed to on your couch where you look around and you're like, wait, oh, no, everyone's seeing this too. Sure. I am hallucinating too. I am shimmering right now because this is so elevated and bizarre. There's stuff in there that is not anywhere nearly as – beautifully rendered or or thought-provoking as the Twin Peaks episode eight. Yes, but there's right. stuff in it, there were moments in that movie where I felt like I was being transported away from the sort of mainstream pop culture industrial complex yes. experience of watching something and 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 floating off into an artist vision. And, uh, and, and more than anything else, yeah. that is why we root for this movie. That is why I ask people to go see it and why we want to talk about it because there's there are gradations of disappointment in a movie, you know, and Look what he went for. Look yeah. what he got into the movie theaters. And I think, and this this will tie into our conversation weirdly in the second half of the show as well, but it's hard to make stuff, man. Yeah. And it's hard to make um, 
exceptional stuff or exceptionally weird stuff. I think ultimately the movie's about what Natalie Portman's Lena character talks about in the classroom at the beginning and about this sort of binary of life and death and creation and destruction happening hand in hand. Uh, and that the world is essentially experiencing a big bang moment with Southern Reach and with Area X, uh, or sorry, with Area X and the Shimmer. And that that is this, um, this act of creation that is, transcends whether, like, uh, I, the, the big thing that keeps coming up is, like, what does it want? What does it want? It's like, well, what if it doesn't want anything? Yeah, what, creation what, doesn't want. What are we putting There is not a it? psychology or a villainy, a villainy to creation or to mutation or to evolution. It's just something that's happening. And I, you know, I'm, I haven't quite bothered to piece together what the Oscar Isaac's character is named Kane. He mm-hmm. kills his brother, quote unquote, in the with the phosphorescent grenade, and then you know goes he kills off. Himself, yeah. yeah, I mean, kills himself, but it's like there's a there's a Cain Abel thing happening mm-hmm. in there, and then this idea that they've gone out, and maybe they're going to create a new world together. Mm-hmm. The actual original ending of this uh, of this movie in the script is pretty interesting because it essentially is. Uh, they are hugging or whatever, you know, like they, mm-hmm. they've they've come together. And it ends with you see through a window that a ton of meteors like the one that started Area X are coming towards Earth. Oh, damn. So don't think that there was ever a plan for a sequel. Obviously, Garland yeah. didn't intend to do uh, Authority, the second the second book in the sequel and the series anyway. That's fine. Um, it sounds like, you know, it'll be probably... 10 years before they can even think about doing this again. There yeah. is an opportunity, though, down the line. Maybe when we're on episode 10,000 of The Watch, they'll be making the new version of no, Violation. There is the 10, 12-episode maxi event series version of this sure. trilogy, um, which I don't know is worthwhile. I mean, I, I think they took a swing and the books exist, but there is something um, that I do miss because the thing that grew me about the book, and sorry, to, I know we said we wouldn't talk about this anymore, but maybe this will get a few people to pick it up and then we can, you know, that can have their own conversations about which they preferred because they are so distinct was the book was inspired by Vandermeer walking around where he lives in Florida and just noticing things, yeah. tidal pools and algae and stuff that literally I can't even say because I don't pay attention to the natural world. Yeah. And the idea of people looking at this and it looking back at us and having something to say or teach us is both beautiful and interesting, but it's also unsettling. And I missed that kind of unsettling nature of it. I was sort of hoping to be disquieted in that way. But that said, look, this is... I'm happy to live in a world where Alex Garland got this money, where he got Natalie Portman and Tessa Thompson to to sign up to do this. I We also just keep getting good movies, man. <laughs> yeah, look, this is it, there are enough movies now that it's a, I'm happy we can have this conversation yeah. not only because I get to go see them, but because we can have a long conversation about a movie that I'm not even sure if I liked. That yeah. doesn't matter. Yes. Yeah. Um yeah. And this is an interesting segue to go into our next conversation, which is about Netflix's Everything Sucks, because I think that there's, we're going to get into a little bit of the relationship between Mm -hmm. having misgivings about a movie and having that Mm -hmm. be a contained experience versus having misgivings about a television show and being like, and now I owe this show four and a half to 12 to 15 hours of my life. Also, about why maybe you're right, movies are sneaky better right now. Uh, We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Black Tux. Everyone wants to look as great as their date at a wedding or a special event. There's trouble is there's just like no way for you to spend the amount of time or money that she did shopping for her outfit. But TheBlackTux.com is your answer. 
with high-quality rental suits and tuxedos delivered straight to your doorstep. The Black Tux is the easy way to rent suits and tuxedos online. The Black Tux lets you create your look or choose from tons of stylist-selected outfits. Suits usually retail for $1,200, but at the Black Tux, they start at just $95. Expert customer care has your back every step of the way. It's completely done online. With the Black Tux free home try-on, you can see the fit and feel the quality of your suit months before your event. After ordering, your suit will arrive 14 days before your event if anything is less than perfect. The Black Tux will send you a free replacement right away. When your event's over, you just drop the rental back in the mail. Shipping is free both ways. To get $20 off your purchase, visit theblacktux.com slash watch. That's theblacktux.com slash watch for $20 off your purchase. Theblacktux.com, premium rental suits and tuxedos delivered. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Movement. You guys have heard us talk about movement. The company has grown like crazy, and now with almost 2 million watches sold in 160 countries, they continue to revolutionize fashion on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. I don't know if you have checked out the site lately, but they have doubled the number of watch styles, and they are expanding. I purchased one of these watches for my mother-in-law. Did you? And she adores it. And you can. this is the thing that I love about movement is that I get you a watch, yep. I get my mother-in-law a watch, we both gave watches to our wives. I yeah, think. I mean that's the thing is you can it can be a great it's a great place to pick up a gift. It's a great place to get a gift for yourself. They are they go over very well as gifts. I can personally attest to that. I'm also super into the revolver collection that they have there right now. At a department store, you're looking at 400 to 500 bucks for a watch, but movement watches start at just 95 bucks because movement figured out a way. That if you just sell online, you can cut out the middleman and the retail markup, providing you with the best possible price, while still offering classic design, quality construction, and styled minimalism. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash watch. That's mvmt.com slash watch. See why movement keeps growing and check out their expanding collection. Check out the revolvers. It's the watch of the watch. Go to movement.com, mvmt.com slash watch. Join the movement. Andy, we're back. Let's talk a little bit about um, Everything Sucks, which is a show that a bunch of our listeners were uh, mm-hmm. definitely like saying, hey, can we can we hear you guys talk about this? Uh, it's from Ben York-Jones and Michael Mohan. It's on Netflix. It is a kind of a 90s throwback. I guess it's set in 1996. Yeah, um, some high school freshman. Very handheld, Oregon. personable comedy, coming-of-age comedy in the vein of Freaks and Geeks. Uh, about a group of teens in uh, freshman, sophomore year in high school mm-hmm. in, in, as you said, in boring Oregon. Um, it's got small town frustrations. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of uh, discovering yourself sure. uh, going on. Emotionally, physically as well. And it has, you know, this phenomenal on-the-nose soundtrack that's Jesus. kind of uh, yeah. crammed into every minute of it. Um, Shouts to Netflix's uh, music sync budget. Good job. I see. I, th- I see, I've been wondering about this for a while. Maybe if somebody who knows something about uh, music supervision, our buddy Anthony Roman might be able to help us with this mm-hmm. question. But I feel like this some rule must have changed. <laughs> no, I think they're well just because paying. there was a, lo- a while ago. It was like there. I remember when there. I can't remember. What it was like the first time I heard Zeppelin in a movie, or at least like it would. It had been like twenty yeah. years since like Almost Famous or something. Right. And I was like, I can't believe David O. Russell had the money for this. And they talked about how, like, Plant and Page, like, allowed it to happen. Yeah, it's generally And that. now I just feel like every show has the the, the first wave serious station on or whatever. <laughs> or Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds isn't really as profitable as uh, everyone needs it to Man's be. Man's not hot. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Man's lukewarm. Man's fine. So 
I want to hear your take on this because yes. uh, I've watched two episodes. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people have basically, and I will probably continue to watch this show. Okay. A lot of people have been like, you got to wait till episode, I think it's five or six for this to look, really get going. Yeah. Look, it's fine. I don't like it, but it's fine. And I can see why people would like it. And I don't blame you if you do. It is well-intentioned. It is sweet. Um, it has some nice performances by some young people, some of whom I think are probably bound for bigger things. Um, but to me, this is a case study of we have too much TV. Um, and, I, and it's self-defeating because we love talking about TV. It's great to have things to talk about. It's self-defeating because, you know, I, I also try to make TV now and, like, there's so much of it. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and it seems counterintuitive to argue that there should be fewer shows. And yet I'm starting to think that in our conversations – we keep hitting this wall of B minus, that things are good, they're fine. And I wonder if that has to do with the fact that there simply aren't as many good scripts as there need to be. There aren't as many good writers as there So you there think it's a talent pool thing? I think it's a talent pool thing. I do. Because there's a version of the show that gets chefed up a little bit, that maybe gets um, worked over some more, written, you know, written up a little bit more, has a higher budget, not for the music, but for everything else around it. Maybe has a larger talent pool to cast the kids from because Stranger Things doesn't exist or some of these other shows with kids doesn't exist, don't exist. And it's a little bit better. Right now, I think it's fine. And by the way, I think net, for Netflix, that's fine. Because for the people, fine is fine. And good, is, good enough is good enough for Netflix. Mm-hmm. Because this, like, many of, like much of their programming, scratches very specific itches. There's nothing wrong with the show. There's nothing offensive about the show. If you are looking for this type of feeling of young people finding themselves, uh, if that ticks a box for you, if you are from this generation and you enjoy the nostalgia for it, it ticks a box for you. It is not expensive to make. But... I'm starting to get frustrated that things aren't better. Yeah. Also, I, I, everybody's outfits in that show, this show, are now yeah. cool again. So yeah. you just—it's <laughs> easy. Yeah. It's not I, the high-waisted jeans are just back. The, like. there's there's just a. I'm watching this and I'm like, I see that they want to be freaks and geeks, but yeah. you know, you know, extremely Lloyd Benson voice. Like I watch Freaks and Geeks. You are not Freaks and Geeks, mm-hmm. and because it's trying to be that and falling short of it, both emotionally and comedically. I had the wrong reaction to a lot of it. There's a big set piece that ends the second episode where our lead character, and uh, that kid is really talented, I think. I think he's... he's yeah, he, Jahai Diallo Winston. I think he's really good. He's a find. Um, in order to woo the daughter of the principal, whom, whom he has a big crush on... Peyton who is, Kennedy. ...who is yeah. discovering that she, in fact, might be gay, he uh, hijacks the AV system of the school and makes a uh, video starring him that's to Wonderwall by Oasis. And I just I couldn't stop cringing. I thought, not in the same way I would cringe if someone in my high school did this, mm-hmm. um, but cringing in like, I, I wish they hadn't. I wish they hadn't tried this because I just thought it failed. I, I, it wasn't clever enough. It wasn't good enough. It just simply was. It literally was karaokeing an emotion that they were that they were chasing, and it wasn't good enough. And, I, and now you've let me be negative about the show that is otherwise very charming and well intentioned. And I feel bad a little bit. I feel like I'm stepping on bunnies, but that aspect bummed me out. I it, it's starting to get to the point where. You know, I, I, I feel like it's almost like a – it's like a, it's when you're watching sports, right? And if you watch basketball – if you watch college basketball every single night versus mm-hmm. if you only watch March Madness. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And it, Or yes. if you watch uh, a 50 Premier League games and you see 10 or 20 1-1 draws and then you watch uh, Manchester City win it on the final day of the season and you're just like, is this what soccer is? Holy shit! Like, yeah. Yeah, like that's how people yes. – react to it and i think that we're having a little bit of that kind of reaction obviously like we have different 
uh, appetites for culture consumption uh, between the two of us. But we've obviously been like sort of tilting a little bit towards like, well, let's talk about this movie. Let's definitely have like, because and then with these shows, I think partially because there's just a huge stack of them to get through. We're a little bit more crusty. We're the old music critics who are like, ah, this sounds like Dinosaur Jr. And I think that that is somewhat of a disservice to the shows, but is actually partly pretty candid. Yes, I think it's fair. Like, I think you have to work harder to break through now. Like, there's just too much stuff. And yes, there's like, I'm sure for every time I'm saying like Ozark is amazing, someone's like, well, what about X, Y, and Z show who that does the same the, thing Ozark does, but better or worse or whatever? T- TV is becoming in a way what it always was, which is something that scratched particular itches at a certain time. Yeah. There will always be something exceptional, that, and that maybe wasn't the case before. But it is servicey in a way. And I think your analogy is correct. I don't watch college sports because I want to watch, I want to cherry pick. Right. I want to watch the best people do the best in, up against the best. Right. It used, just uh, used to be that the, the TV did not have that huge catalog, that huge library of content happening all the time from which you had to cherry pick. It used to just be like, well, there's only 10 shows on. Yes, but and also, I like four of them. But also you know? no one was dunking. Yeah. You know what yes, I mean? It, yes. it was like it was like watching Penn Cornell in 1950. Right. It was like crisp chest passes. And then we had five years of execution. guys who were really good. Yeah. And now we're like, oh, okay, they're the one and done. And I think that we are running up against, yes, there's the diluted talent pool, but I think we also, as I alluded to, we're talking about services that are trying to build content libraries and trying to specifically with a tech mentality. Not And I, that's sounds pejorative, I don't mean it, but with a tech mentality, program to need as opposed to programming to be exceptional and, and ticking certain boxes, you know, algorithmic boxes that we don't, that we don't even know about. And so it's fine. So, so I feel like a you- lot of the shows we've been talking about this year and, you know, people, and it's fine, people love to say like, I don't like anything anymore, or maybe I never did like anything, but I am noticing that the majority, we, we were excited to get back into talking about a lot of shows this year, and we've been covering a lot, but I think they've generally been B2B minuses. I think Dark was an exception mm-hmm. so far this year. And I think that's really reflective of the quality level of the shows. I think a lot of them have been fine. And, you know, pivoting forward, we're going to talk about a show that premieres tonight on Thursday that, that you're really into, McMafia mm-hmm. on AMC. And I enjoyed it because it goes towards a lot of my interests as well. But I still felt a little bit of the same thing. Like, this could have been better. Yeah, well, that's a great question, is that when you have this kind of volume, like, here's, a, here's an example. And I think you actually would say the same thing about Terriers. Maybe not. Maybe you're a little bit too in the bag for Terriers. Super I, in the which bag. Which I love t- Terriers. I would say the same thing about Justified. There uh-huh. were half of the season of Justified were not throwaway episodes. They had great moments. They mm-hmm. had great lines. They had great scenes. But they were almost self-consciously like, here's a, a one-off because we're going to do like sort of five mm-hmm. overarching episodes that really are about like, say, the Margot Martin, the, the Margot Martindale character, or we're going to do a Boyd episode that it's, it's Boyd and Raylan. Then there would be like, Raylan has to do a case today. Mm-hmm. And whatever that was, six years ago, seven years ago, epi- in season three or se- season four of Justified, you just kind of be like, cool. I mean, like, I like hanging out here. I do not have as much competition for my eyeballs. I, I would, I think, that's a, I think that's a correct point, but I would push back a little bit just to say that what the shows you're mentioning, Justified and Terriers, and it's something that FX has always understood pretty well, that's actually old-fashioned TV yes. in the sense yes. that even when they are treading water or even when they are doing a, a mission episode or just connecting the dots, they do so with an eye towards entertaining you in a world that you like to be in. Yes. And that, for a while, got a little muddled and didn't, it's not a sin, but it wasn't the point. I think TV, as the high-mindedness of the prestige era trickled down, 
middle episodes became more about um, educating the audience on the world mm-hmm. or uh, you know three episode guest guest actor runs like that. That's it, kind of stuff that doesn't feel like it really it, happens as much anymore. No, and I and I and I think that I, I think that it's okay to admit that you're making a TV show. It doesn't have to become something even more but profound I think or build up. Because we ask such high concepts, yes, we, we ask do. for such incredible star wattage, and we ask for something that really delivers a reason to watch because one of the things that everything sucks is sort of trying to pitch here is like, Hey, it's like, it's freaks and geeks, but it's the nineties. And we're, uh, mm-hmm. we're really like investing in the cultural touchstones of the time period. We got slap bracelets, man. Yeah. And that's the concept, right? Otherwise it's a pretty traditional dramedy, right? Or- yes. And, 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 you know, to, to follow, I, I'm curious if you think this, like there were, I smiled at the appropriate places because we all knew people like this no matter the era. You know, we the, the drama kids I particularly mm-hmm. enjoyed um, and certainly the music cues I enjoyed. Although I have to say, What's the Story Morning Glory came out in 1995 and that was a very profound uh, Tuesday release day for me <laughs> yes. in college because the same day that Super Chunks Here's Where the Strings Come but In he and Red Hot and Bother Colum- came the, out. The Columbia House. And so he's maybe in Boring, Oregon. Like, he's not yeah, in college. it's like it's getting out Just there. gotta say, yeah. the same way I'm like... This is kind of getting back to the Ladybird conversation about how long Crash would have been in rotation. It, uh, so I, I understand that, though. Fair. Um, but, I, but I'm curious if there was anything in the show thus far uh-huh. that suggested what many people who have defended the show have suggested to us, which is that there's something deeper and more unique or idiosyncratic about these people and their emotional relationships yeah, but than, are you than willing the archetypes. to spend... These episodes are pretty short, and I think that they... I love that. They're counting on you being able to get through three or four of them to get to the money the money part. But do you see any of those trails? Not yet. That's the thing. Not yet, but I, I take people's word for it. And, like, the thing with Netflix is... Here's the thing with McMafia. I watched McMafia when it was on in England, mm-hmm. so I've already seen the season. It was a joy to watch McMafia once a week. Mm-hmm. I looked forward to watching McMafia mm-hmm. once a week. I didn't need to watch three episodes of McMafia at once. That would be overkill. But mm-hmm. dropping in on these people and their money and their drugs uh, was very exciting to do once yep. a week. I don't. I think Netflix is counting on me saying I have three hours to watch Everything Sucks. Yep. And that is a different proposition that you're making with the audience. So I'd be curious to know what our listeners thought. I became, you know, actually, it's just a, a great, great opportunity for mention that we have a Facebook page. Oh, now, great call. We do have a Facebook page where you can go and you can talk about TV. You can talk about the watch, talk and meet other people. Talk about your skincare. Regimen. You can talk about my skincare regimen. Yeah. I don't know about you. I have. I, 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 I don't have one yet. If but you I'm... want, I can introduce you to a guy. But we've created a new place for you guys to come together, hang out, discuss the pod, and get to know fans of the show. Search the watch on Facebook and go to groups. And you'll find us there. So it's also you can find it through the Ringer's Facebook page too, right? Yeah, I think that you're saying out on everything sucks. I'm out regretfully, I, almost. Yeah, I. You know, I, I'm I, saying I'm I'm one foot in, one foot out. The other thing to remember, um, and maybe we should we should have brought this up the last time we had an entire long conversation about the state of Netflix. Um, anecdotally, obviously they don't provide information, but anecdotally. One of their most successful shows of all time, if not their most successful show to date, is 13 Reasons Why. That's not a show we've we've discussed. Narcos is top five for sure. Um, Netflix is realizing that the people who have the interest, the passion, and the time to deep binge, like really go for it, are kids, teenagers, who are growing up not checking for Thursday nights on NBC, but just assuming Netflix is its own ecosystem. So the programming 
is starting to reflect that, and that's a very smart business move. It might be a smart creative move, too, if we get feedback from from the teens, who I'm sure want to hear about the skincare habits of 40-something-year-old podcast hosts, <laughs> but who are just like, this show <laughs> ticks boxes for me. I enjoy yeah. this. I don't know about Freaks and Geeks. I know about this. Yeah. Um, but some of their moves are are pointed away from us, despite the whatever generational overlaps exist. Yes. But, you know, this, more than anything, this whole conversation in this podcast has made me has reinforced something that you brought up the other week, that movies might be more exciting right now because it is a chance to, once again, see the, the biggest home run swing, the best, the best funded creatively and financially uh, take on something. Now, in the case of Annihilation, I think it didn't work, but boy, was that an interesting yes, swing. Yes, and also the trade between time and payoff is more logical. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, even if annihilation had been two and a half hours, it would have been the two that would have been it. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't have been like, well, I have to wait for episode nine for this to really round third and get into like what it's really about. I, I guess that's nine hours, dog. That's a long time. No, I know. And and um, you know, again, I think people. I hope people will check out McMafia tonight, Monday on AMC. Um, we can talk more about it later. But yeah, I just want to say it, it, Andy's a little bit more reserved. I I. I loved this show. Can you give the, the the elevator pitch on that? Yeah, McMafia is just about a guy, uh, a, a a guy named Alex Godman, who is a hedge fund banker living in London. It's very relatable, and uh, has uh, he's a Russian immigrant, and he uh, his uncle and his father have a pretty apparent Russian mob ties, although he looks at himself sort of in the Michael Corleone way mm-hmm. of being exactly. outside of that in the beginning of Godfather. I mean, not the second Godfather. Sort of what about the third? He looks at himself looking, being sort of outside of their their history and their legacy and their their connections with Russia. And events transpire that draw him in mm-hmm. to that world and the world of uh, money laundering and drug smuggling. Those events transpire around the 35-minute mark yes, of the, of and the we pilot. Get David Strathairn playing an Israeli uh, political fixer slash And smuggler. by the way, where are all my top-of-the-lake China girl heads at? Because your man David Denchik, he— he doesn't have a long runway, yeah, but he, he puts in work. Uh, and the waif, also from Game of Thrones. Oh, great call! Doing a great job as a, a kind of drugged up, champagned up Russian uh, Russian girl. It's not much of a stretch from yeah. what she was on Game of Thrones. Look, no. I, the, the the conversation we should have is, plays Alex Godman's sister. Yeah, only to only to to, to to say this in the broadest possible terms is I think that this is an ongoing conversation even with us in terms of what we want from TV yep. because there are moments when we are so gratified that television has become so micro-programmed to give us shows that just take our boxes, yes. that deliver the sorts of things that we're interested in, that we enjoy. And I mean that high and low. I mean that from the pilot of Ozark to, you know, the middle episodes of Twin Peaks where there's a 10-minute interlude of a guy sweeping the floor. I mean, these are very, these are micro-programmed yeah, absolutely. in a way, and they appeal to us. But I am also at the same time wishing that there were bigger swings still allowed. Now, Often you do a bigger swing and you end up with Here and Now on HBO, which, by the way, shouts to HBO for basically convincing the world that this show doesn't exist. <laughs> we haven't even mentioned it. If you like, HBO puts out five, no, four dramas a year, maybe. Yeah. Uh, they debut one or two at most. Yes. And this is a new show from the from Alan Ball who did Six Feet Under. It's Tim Robbins and Holly Hunter. And nobody has said a single thing. Except that this is like an abomination. Yes. Like it is one of the worst shows in recent memory. And it is sort of like a fever dream of what everyone inside CPAC over the weekend listening to Trump's speech thinks, <laughs> thinks that, that we're we, watching. Yeah. And maybe they're right and they have a point. But, yo, this show has been ghosted. I know. No one— Is it coming back? 
I'm sure, first of all, I'm sure not. But second of all, really impressed by HBO and the regime over there because when vinyl came out, all the stories were like, oh, HBO's blowing it. Like, what yeah, is this yeah. big budget thing? Here now, they just, they were like, here's something that we're putting out. And everyone's pretending it doesn't exist. I know. They're bulletproof. If you want to read any of the stuff that we discussed from the earlier in the pod, uh, like Sean's interview, Naaman's review, the exit survey, all that stuff will be in our show notes. We're going to try and include more links in there. Can I throw a non-ringer link in there? Manola, sure. Manola Dargis's review of Annihilation in the New York Times was hewed very closely to my mixed uh, okay. enthusiasm. You and Manola. Maybe she should replace me. We're both LA residents. I'll just move to Ojai. Uh, until Thursday. On Thursday, we're going to be talking about McMafia. We'll do a little bit of Looming Tower. I think maybe catching up with Counterpart. Yeah, I'm catching up on Counterpart. They, okay. By the way, we should all be catching up on Counterpart. That Not only is it getting a second season. Betty Gabriel but back. This is what's so weird about TV. Yeah. Oscar season right now, get out. Everyone's like, low-key, Betty Gabriel is the most amazing performance in that movie. Counterpart on Stars nabs her for season two. Yeah. Get these actors, television. What are you doing? <laughs> Why is Star? I mean, good for Stars, but yo. Yeah. What are we doing? All right. Uh, see you Thursday. Great job, Bransky's. Hey guys, this is Sean Fennessy, the editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and I want to tell you about a podcast I host called The Big Picture. Each week, I welcome a different filmmaker to talk about their latest movie and how it was made. I've talked to the directors of some of my favorite movies, including Jordan Peele, Greta Gerwig, Ryan Johnson, Barry Jenkins, and dozens more. You can find new episodes on the Channel 33 feed every Friday by going to theringer.com backslash podcasts or by subscribing to Channel 33 wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you'll check it out. 